Hello and welcome along to the Unplugged Pod, where each week we explore absolutely everything to do with switching off in a world that's always on. I'm David and alongside me is Mr. Unplugged, Hector Hughes. This week we're joined by Maureen Tangai. Maureen wears many hats, uh, but among them she's a two-time TEDx speaker and the author of the upcoming book, Visual Detox. Hope you enjoy. The Maureen, well... First of all, thank you very much for coming along and being part of the Unplugged pod. Massively appreciate your time. I know you've taken a couple of flights to be here today, so fresh off the plane, greatly appreciated. Uh, Yeah, we're going to start by asking you what we ask uh, every guest at the beginning of the Unplugged podcast, and that is, how do you unplug? So, of course, as a very biased person towards visuals, I unplug visually, uh, which means that I would unplug through walking or cycling in nature. I would unplug through seeing an exhibition I love or basically exposing myself to a very different inv- visual environment. Like you mentioned the flights yesterday, but I I unplugged after the, the COP conference when I was speaking to just go and see the sea just for like 30 minutes. Um, so I always try to switch my visual environment, which obviously is a core belief of what we do. Um, and that makes me suddenly just like the 30 minutes yesterday were priceless. I think um, it, this is an odd one, but I think some people actually unplug on a plane as well just because you can disconnect from the internet. And I remember specifically about five years ago being on an eight-hour flight and I saw the most insane thing because the person next to me didn't, they didn't read a book. They didn't like open anything. This was on a flight. They looked out the window for eight hours and that was it. And I remember at the time just thinking, that's insane. Turned down the meal, just had like water. And I remember thinking like, that is totally insane. I've never seen anyone do that, but maybe maybe it will catch on. Um, All right, so it's all, so it's it's very visual. I, I, I listened to another podcast you're on and uh, I thought it was fascinating you talking about how you grew up, which sounds very, very unplugged, right? <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, there was more birds than people where I grew up. Um, so we were five or seven years at school. It's called Ile de Ré on the off the west coast of France. My two parents, um, my dad is a sport teacher. My mum is a primary teacher. And you were walking to school for like 30 minutes. Uh, there's no high school, so you have to go to mainland. Uh, so it's fully unplugged. Um, but actually, I didn't like it. Um, controversially, I love living in the central of London. Um, I am that person who's, my whole family is still there. My granny is 101. Everyone is incredibly happy there. I just wanted to be intellectually challenged. And I felt that everyone was thinking very similarly. And I was dying to have conversations with people, dying to be exposed to different ways of looking at the world. But of course, I was very grateful to grow up in a place that was very beautiful. When did you make that move? Um, as soon as I could make that move, which was 17, um, and, and I left the house and, uh, yeah, I looked at myself actually, um, it was, I was very much that person that as soon as she could leave, she left. I hope my two kids don't do this on me, but, um, it was quite, it was as soon as I could. And you've obviously spoken already a lot and I know, uh, in many talks, you've done a TED talk on it about visuals and, and the importance of, uh, that you obviously have deep conviction about it now like where did that come from originally i think it's interesting because at the beginning it was not really a conviction it was more just listening to what i needed personally like i was attracted ultimately to everything that was visual like i mentioned the example of the sea yesterday but if i felt unwell and i just walk and looked at the sea or anything that visually was inspiring then i will feel better like and i just for some reason felt um, felt that since I was like a kid. So I kind of, I sense that like the visuals had a big impact on how I felt. Um, it's really interesting now having written a book and having researched it on the fact that 
Um, my little anecdote is actually part of something that we all feel. 65% of us are visual learners. So actually, most of us are not um, verbal learners. We relate to visuals much more than we relate to words. Um, and, and you will know that through Unplug. Like it just... That our visual environment has an enormous impact on on who we become and how we're being shaped and visuals travel to the the brain a lot faster than words so I think it started by anecdotes I think as I now involved into a lot of writing and research about it and obviously built a company in this space I realized that this is something that just simply has been under 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 understood under tapped misunderstood not understood and and probably always disqualified as this is pretty is sweet, is cute, it's a lifestyle for something that's actually essential. And for me as a kid, it always felt essential. It was never something that was superficial. So it's nice to hear people are realizing it's, it's essential. It's strange because it is, as you say, such a huge part of life, like what, what we see. But you, you're literally the first person I've come across who, who's identified this, who's talking about the impacts of a visual. Well, it's a fish in the pond, right? It's like you realize you've got water around you once you've actually spotted you've got water around you. It's, um, it, I, it, I'm excited therefore for the release of the book for that reason, because every time we, as a company, we constantly have this conversation where people are just like, I've just never realized this. And then they realize how present it is. But we are in, like you are to this day, by the minute you woke up to this morning up to now, you probably already looked at hundreds of images, you know, like you, we are in a very, very visual world. The next generation will be consuming even more visuals. So it could be more tangible, but it is a fish in the water. And uh, it's probably worth um, just giving a bit of a backstory then to, to what led you to, to writing the book, really, how, how you went from... I confess, and Hector, you said this earlier, I'd never heard of the island. What's it called again? Not many people have heard of it, right? So it's facing La Rochelle. You probably have learned, like, uh, it's two hours from Bordeaux. I mean, it's tiny again. Like, it's not, I don't, it's normal. Uh, and what, what led you then from, from, from there to, to the point now, writing the book? Um, I mean, the book is a long, because obviously I'm now 34, so I have left the island a long time ago now. Um, but I feel it's... <laughs> <laughs> exactly slightly bigger a slightly more involving trade as well um I feel like you know first of all to take a tiny step back and, and kind of introduce what we've built and what we've done um so I left when I was 17 I studied um uh, something called the class prepa in French which is philosophy historiography geopolitics literature um I actually adored everything I was studying. The problem is that I could only become a politician or a professor out of the studies, which is two things I didn't want to be. Um, but basically, it was critical thinking. And what's interesting is what we've developed through the book is visual critical thinking. So I think what I studied was new ways of thinking constantly. And I think that was really helpful in then building up um, the first talent agency in the art world, like rethinking the role of the artist in society, rethinking how you develop revenue streams for artists, which is now what we do, how you integrate art in all contexts, how you change how elitist ultimately the sector has been. Um, I think critical thinking has helped me because um, you're constantly questioning your ways of doing things. Um, and then England for me, um, therefore offered me the opportunity that you could have work experience much earlier than you could have in France. Um, you could be trusted much faster as well if you were uh, super keen, and I was definitely very keen. Um, and so I came here straight away after studying for two years in France. And I was spotted quite early on by the guy who discovered Banksy, Steve Lazaridis. So I was his Gary manager at 21. I have never been cool. I still have my pink bicycle at the time. It was very funny because it was all just street art guys. Um, but what I did see is 
if you were to spot talent at the right time, you could make, you know, not only just loads of money, but the ride could just be so exciting. You would just ultimately be on a ride of success with the talents. And I got really quite excited about this. Um, so from that experience, I then was approached by an investor who had an advertising company in Los Angeles. And then he said, why don't we co-earn a gallery together? I was sent from London to LA, never dreamed of LA. LA was really interesting because it was how do you share reputation at a large scale? How do you develop large audiences? How do you back talents? But all of this ultimately kept feeding in my head that a gallery was a retail space. There was a better way to back talents in the art world. Um, and that's how I came back and followed the first talent agency. I thought we could back those talents better. We could not just sell their works on walls, but actually do loads of public art projects with them, brand collabs, digital collabs, entertainments. They could be at the center for forefront of society. And since we do a lot of public art you see in London, um, we kicked off the World Cup last year with art, the David Tempo, Apple TV documentary, all the artists asked, so loads of cool stuff. Um, and I think it's really rethinking, again, how visual artists can be integrated to your daily uh, and how they can be first and foremost. So that's in a nutshell. I think the book is the opportunity to explain why I believe that's the right thing to do. Um, and I believe that's the right thing to do because um, in a very, the very visual world we're in, um, it's not democratized what kind of visuals we see and how exposed we are to them. You're mostly exposed to commercial imagery that dreams of a lifestyle for you to acquire more and more, which is totally opposite to unplug. Um, you are also pushed and pushed and pushed to be a certain person. I think art has a big place to take in that narrative to shift this narrative ultimately. Um, I also feel like people don't think they can speak the visual language. The more you integrate art, the more they think this is for them. Um, so that's all the reasons in which we became a B Corp as well in the sector and why I believe this is the right thing to do. And I think Penguin is give me the opportunity to explain why I think that's the right thing to do. How did you get scouted? Was that the word by Banksy's manager? How did, how did that happen? So I think, I mean, I think this is a thing with when you're like really young is you just, you don't, under, I, I think coming from the island where I came from, I just didn't understand hierarchies. Um, so I talked to everyone and I think someone who had a suit would look like someone very intimidating because it was just like, they must have a really important role. So it just came to me by Rafe Taylor, who was managing the Gary Lazaridis. Um, and he had heard that had helped out on fairs. And I was making quite like good sales um, quite early on. I was chatting to everyone. Um, and then I got the role. And you know, you get the role and you're just like, oh my God, I literally have no idea what that actually means. Um, but you're young and you therefore go for things. And then in the inside, you are very panicked is the answer. So it's much nicer to be older. Not many people say it's not much nicer to be older. That's a nice, uh, nice perspective. Uh, I just wanted to touch briefly on um, only because I was mess messing around with it yesterday, like AI art. Yeah. Like for anyone that hasn't played around with it, and I was explaining this to Hector earlier, like it's like it's totally insane. As in, you can upload a photograph of you and say, um, Marine is like uh, riding a dragon through Paris in the style of Monet and click a button and AI art will create that image. And it might not be perfect, but it will be perfect in next year or in 2025. Or, I mean, it, it actually like really scared me when I saw it. I was like, that is a level of creativity that I never thought like a computer would be able to do. Uh, and I'm sure like people listen to this and be really skeptical, be like, I can't be that good. It is that good. Like it really is. So I suppose the question is that I imagine has been asked a lot in the art community. 
what 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 do you guys do like how do you, how do you contend with this do you do you attack it do you regulate it or do you try and work alongside it yeah i mean there's three different ways in which we look at it i think one is what the book advocates which is visual critical thinking for me like ultimately images could come from anywhere as long as you know who created it and what's the intention right now you're consuming loads of adverts that makes you feel crap to then consume x one z product like and the problem is you're quite passive with it. So you don't know that's the intention and you'll just end up feeling crap and then ultimately acting on it, right? AI is the same. Like if you don't understand what is the source and the fact that ultimately that was AI and what's the intention, that is a danger. But if you understand what it is, AI, and then you understand the intention, that's a lot less dangerous. So that's why educating us visually is really important. Like how do we understand the images we're constantly being fed? Because that's that's the danger, it's misinformation. Like they're saying over the next 10 to 15 years, like most of the images we will see could lead to misinformation. That's incredibly dangerous if we don't teach visual critical thinking. In the same way that I'm a big component of teaching critical thinking, like the school that my eldest son goes to has critical thinking at six, Jenny Manuel in Bloomsbury, and that's the only reason he's in that school because I just I think it's essential in a time of misinformation that we do understand how to interpret information. That's the one thing. Second thing, you did say, yes, you can come up with a brief. I think realistically, like when I look at our AI artists, like and the ones that we represent, like it's a lot more complicated than just saying Marina and a dragon in a Monet style, as you know, right? Like, and it's not new that a Diamond House, for instance, doesn't make his work. You know, he has large studios that will make his works. Um, I mean, an entrepreneur, you could argue, like it's the team that leads the the vision. There, there's never you've always had different ways to execute visions, and I think it's um it's important to reinforce. That. I think that vision once again is what matters. Um. And I think when I look at what the artists are able to create with AI and how they're trying to also address issues such as diversity within AI, it's really interesting. I think creatively interesting, intellectually interesting, conceptually very interesting. So it's there's a lot of space for artists to work with it. Um, and I hope artists, therefore, helps and, uh, and inform us of the misinformation that will be used. Um, when it comes to the tool itself, I think I mean, the regulation are essential. I think it's always a problematic on you know, the fact that the private sector, the governments are so tied in now, it's it's really hard to see if there will be regulation sometime because as we all know, um, that's one of the big challenges of democracy um, right now is the fact that the lobbying is so high at all levels. Um, so I hope that regulations come sometime. If it doesn't, I think misinformation is once again what we should be most scared about because already we constantly targeted with misinformation. Um, so imagine like being told um, the person you hate the most or you compete against has done X and it's not even true, but someone has made it up, right? It's just dangerous. Um, it's already a bipolarized world. This could just lead to more conflicts. So I hope regulation comes before that. If it doesn't, visual critical thinking is something we should all try and practice as much as we can and make sure we question what we see, not just act emotionally on what we see. But just um, just commercially though, I mean, how, how does it work? Is it easy for artists to become a bit despondent because what might take someone 10,000 hours maybe doesn't take to AI 10 seconds but it'll take them 10 minutes maybe I mean that if I was a young artist I'd be like I was scared and I'm not an artist so like if I was an artist I'd look at that and think how how can I possibly compete with that if there isn't regulation like that's 
that that's terrifying no yeah it's interesting it doesn't worry me at all because i feel it's same you know when an entrepreneur has got an idea which sure has happened to unplug has happened to us many times and someone copy pasted it and you always worry the first time around you're like oh my god they just copy pasted everything that we did literally to the dozen sentences you use right and in reality, like very quickly it fails because it's not in the outcome that you really work out visions, it's in the process. Like, and I think it's, I think everything is process based on everything that's actually successful. And it's the same in artists, in, in the artists we work with. Like, their vision is in their daily process. Um, that's what makes them valuable. That's what makes them people that ultimately want to back. Um, so you have you could say the same with companies, but they don't last. Um, any anything that's just a pale copy doesn't last. Now I think there's a lot at play in how do you how do we learn from that tool to just further visions. Um, but yeah, I'm not worried. I I'm never worried about pure outcomes. I guess a lot of it is the story as well, because you know, a lot of art is how it makes you feel. And you could have an AI-generated image that is identical to the Mona Lisa, mm -hmm. but fundamentally standing in front of that at the Louvre is going to give you a very different feeling to seeing the, the identical picture on the internet. So a lot of it is also the story behind it. And yeah, it's context. Kind of context. I mean, you yeah. know, it's the same with inventing something. Like, context is incredibly key. Like, the, the reality is... The reason art matters is that, well, one of the main reasons is ultimately is telling you a new way to see the world. So that timing is going to be so relevant because um, if you already know that, but it's come 50 years later, it's going to have a full different meaning. So that, that, that historical context is already a big part of it. Um, it's not just an image. Uh, and that's, again, the thing with visuals, they're not just visuals. Uh, they shape contexts. They're part of their historical contexts. What would you say is the... The, the kind of main message in, in the book? Um, I hope, first of all, like you say, that you realize, oh my God, I'm in that water as a fish. Um, I just never realized I was part of it. Um, you know, fresh out of cup, it's like we're all trying to change our consumption, but we are targeted with narrative, a visual narrative of success that still tells us that where we were, how we wear it, and how we show wealth is the only way to be successful today. So, it's we need to really be aware that this is something that is not targeted once a day it's targeted hundreds of times a day so really what are, what kind of visual priorities do we want to shift i would like to think that i would prefer to start my day with visuals that talks about mental health or impact or like core priorities over the ones i'm constantly bombarded on that i should realize myself through a happier lifestyle you know so it's really that awareness first that matters and triggering that awareness. And through this is developing an ability to develop a visual critical thinking and then wanting to participate in that language that ultimately you are exposed to on a daily basis. So as long as um, someone wants to participate, I'm happy. And then the more people, the merrier. So it's, it's being conscious and creating what you see each day. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, yeah, interesting. And how have you changed? What, what do you see each day? What? I mean, I think it's when you're in the sector, you're very privileged, I think is the answer. Like, I think if I look at my days, I start the day by dropping off the kids through school, cycling for 15 minutes, you know, through lovely buildings in London. Then I go into a building and I have already left one that's full of art um, and I go into places that are very visually, like, beautiful and stunning. So I don't think I will be ever someone... Um, yeah, I'm completely in that water and I've designed it, but I'm 
uh, I think I just know my privileges in in having designed a life that visually makes me very happy. And I see the difference on a daily basis. Um, and if I feel unhappy, I still shift my visual environments and, and it's still very effective. And is that as simple as just going to a park when you talk about shifting your visual environments? Yeah, I mean, the, the example of the bicycle with the kids, like I would never take Oxford Street. I always take the back street, you know? Like it's just, it's as simple... Like I would just pick my streets. I feel ultimately are just nicer and nicer for me means a better sound system, um, a less retailers and, and billboards targeting me um, and then more quaint streets. Like there are little ways in which you can constantly implement changes. That doesn't require wealth. It requires to just reshift as much as you can, your exposure uh, to visuals. And I think commercial imagery is a big problem. It's not the whole problem. But I think digital and commercial imagery are probably the two things that you can most act upon. Um, digitally, I think people just don't realize that they follow accounts that actually makes them feel really crap. So just make sure that you don't get exposed to that imagery. It will already make you feel much better. You think it's you feeling crap. It's actually the image that's feeding you there. So just being more in tune with what makes you feel there. And you've, you've also got two kids, right? Yeah. So how... How do you deal with that challenge? I guess we all grew up and at least in our formative years, like we weren't bombarded with technology, certainly not at the level that we had now. And obviously on the island that you grew up, I imagine it was, it was very, very different. So how, how how will you deal with that challenge as your, as your kids grow up and in a world that is, is, is just so visual? Yeah, it's, I mean, I feel I'm trying to think what kind of, I mean, it's very hard because my kids have a childhood that is totally opposite to mine. So I think I would never know the effect of it. They probably tell me at therapy at 18 that, <laughs> that they hate it. They want to be in a concert in the countryside. It was horrible. Um, but I, I, what am I conscious of? I think I'm very conscious of their mental health. I think that's something that I've always felt, you know, just they are, first of all, in a very loving environment with people who are from all walks of life, who are right, left and center. They also don't forget, very privileged. They are the kids of the founder, which means that every building site, every project that we done, like we just did that public art project in in the city. And like my eldest was like on the building site with like 13 builders and he loved it. Like, you know, that's ex exciting for them. They get to see how things are made. So he probably have an understanding of, oh, that's how things are done. And I'm sure that's going further how he sees the world. Um, I mean, they go to museums, they go to nature quite a lot. Like, um, he's not really like my eldest is four, my second is eight months and they are not like, he's not really into the screen. Um, but, um, but I, I don't know, I don't know if it's our, you know, I think they are such a mind of their own. I don't know if it's even through us. Um, it's also very active life where there are people flocking through this house on a constant basis, you know, it's not really a place where you just sit for hours in front of the screen. There's always an artist saying or a creative saying or like someone coming and saying hello. So the exposure to people is constant, which is probably driving you away from a screen, I think, in a sense. Yeah, it's, it seems like a lot of like when it doesn't go so well and kids spend a lot of time on screens, it's almost a lack of anything else to do. It's the parents are tired and they want to distract the kids. So they give them an iPad, whatever it is. So, yeah, I think having that stream sounds sounds very healthy for sure. Well, let's see. We'll wait for the therapy at 18. <laughs> but also as non-parents, we're just not allowed an opinion here, right? Like whatever you can parents, have, you know. No, you can have an opinion. Uh, we can have an opinion, but it's pretty much invalid. Right? <laughs> I am as open to all opinions as possible. And so, so let's talk about the writing process because while writing this book, you didn't take any time off running the company and yeah. it was during the, the birth of your second child. Yes. 
So how, how did you how did you manage that? I found it really hard. Um, I'm not going to lie. Like I feel the it's interesting. I was say, I was having that conversation with one of my girlfriends this this week. Two things that made me feel really uncomfortable this year was taking ballet again and writing a book. Um, because I feel business, it's now been 15 years, I'm confident in it. I'm not saying there's like good days every day, but I understand my value, I understand how I can close a deal, I understand how I can develop the growth of a company. I just, I'm at ease in it. So in a sense, like, I don't, I don't idealize business, I don't idealize business people, I just, I crack on with it. But I idealize intellectual people because I have never published a book and then I'm a double dropout. Like, so it's a big deal when you when you just go from this to like publishing a book. And ballet is the same. I've always idealized ballet dancers. Um, so it's funny having done both this year where I just look at this women who are like totally flexible and having just redone it. And I'm just like, oh, I just, you know, I work really hard and I just feel like an imposter for the first time in a long time, right? But I think that's really nice. I think like feeling like an imposter in this context is really lovely. I think the truth is like Penguin was my dream publisher. Um, I really highly respect my editor, Marianne. Um, she's really incredible. One of the first black women in the publishing world, like super smart. Um, and I think I idolized this world. Um, so I was for the first time really trying very hard for to please and to make sure I was doing okay. And I just also didn't have um, as much of understanding if I was doing well enough I think in business I would know you know like you understand your numbers and this and that and your projections and and you're used to knowing if you're doing well or not um, so it was a totally outside of the my comfort zone year but as always with all these things I think it was a very amazing growth year and I can do a split in the air now <laughs> It's like it's a skill set. I don't know how to use it on a daily basis. Maybe it may be a party trick. Um, a podcast trick. <laughs> exactly. But it just it felt really nice to be fully uncomfortable in two spaces. I hadn't been fully uncomfortable in a long time. Um, so I've grown a lot as a result. And I have attracted a hell of a great Gen Z in my team since I have a hobby like dance because I think that the fact that their boss has a hobby makes me a Gen Z once again. So I have a great Gen Z team and that makes me very happy. It makes you human as well, exactly. not just a boss, right? Exactly. And it's nice to like feel really uncomfortable. It's a good thing. What's next on your list of uncomfortable? Uncomfortable thing. Yeah. Well, so I think now that it's been such a good year of being uncomfortable, I'm actually, yeah, so I, I think I'm going to take on tennis. Um, okay. <laughs> it's yeah. an endless year. <laughs> I feel it's been the year where like, every time I hear one of my girlfriends was like, I do live classes of this. I'm like, oh, that sounds so interesting. Like, so I think God knows, the answer is God knows. I've realized that the more I was learning, the better I was in business, but also the happiest I was, which is all the things that we know. But actually me doing this ballet sessions three or four times a week has made me a substantially better boss and also we've doubled revenue when my sector was 30% done you know like if it's just it sounds so stupid but I feel you just feel oh I can do this so of course you you're walking back into into the business with a different confidence so god knows I could take on loads of new skill sets and so specifically on that point of ballet has made you a better boss is, is that a confidence kind of happiness just the general aura that you you give off I think it's it's exact it's telling people exactly what you said. It's more human. You're exposing your vulnerability because ultimately you I don't know how much you know about ballet, but it's one of the hardest things you can ever attempt to like redo. So you and it's not a place where everyone is gonna be like super encouraging and American about it. Like your your teacher is gonna be like, You're crap at this. Like it's not it's not an encouraging place to walk back into. So and I also had a postpartum body when I restarted. So like and I had I was with early twenties 
in the academy at DanceWorks. And so it takes a lot of vulnerability to redo this. But I think with that vulnerability comes strengths because you're allowed ultimately, you accept that you won't be perfect, but that ultimately that's the way you'll be progressing. Um, I think it's a joy. They say that in your early 30s, you're most set in your belief system, your values and your habits. I think there's a sense of like not being that, that's very freeing because you're just like, actually, I'm not set in any of my belief system, any of my routines and any of my habits. And, and you feel quite young for it. I feel it's like it feels quite liberating to not be set in a specific life and routine and things and take on new things, you know. So for all these reasons, it's um, bring back, I think, the fun and the vulnerable element of your boss. I think that new generation really cares for mental health, really cares for hobbies, really cares for definition of what is work, what isn't. Um, so I'm sure it helped reconnecting with that generation who didn't want the perfect millennial, which my generation was. And I think that helped that generation too. How are your toes? I mean, you have to, I, this, I have a break. Them, right? I <laughs> I have the full kit and I will have a break to stretch them. It's, it's a whole lifetime, guys. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's, it's the full kit that comes with it. And on, on how you run the business, what have you changed anything um, based on the insights that, that led you to, read the, uh, to write the book? Because uh, as you say, you've got this Gen Z uh, workforce that maybe do struggle a bit more with the kind of content they consume. And you know, it, has it changed how you run the company? I think the book, you know, the book, a book is existential. And I, in a sense that like, you have to reanalyze why you did things and why you did them. I think the book, again, was very freeing because it projected me back that, you know, when I was 25, 26, I started the business, like I was angry against the sector and I was on trainers and I wanted to change things. And I think the book realigns the values of why you've done things and then the, and you feel empowered by all the research and intellectual articulation that you're developing. So it's, I think we're even more values-led. We were always values-led, but I think now there's, we're back to being fearless. I think I'm having a 20s or crisis, right? Yeah. It's like, I feel like this is why it's all coming as a Gen Z too, but I feel I'm back on that trainer's uh, moment of, you know, you're just values-led, you really want to change things. It's realigned a lot of the core values. You know, we just were one of the fastest growing company last year. Like it, you can get caught with the numbers because ultimately you have to achieve them. All my teams are shareholders, like my, I have investors, like you want to ultimately achieve and scale the business and I'm very ambitious for it. But I feel, I think the book was like values at core, just don't drop why all of you guys started in, when you were 25. And that again was quite empowering because you're just having it clear and my, my head is very clear out of it. Amazing. What's next? Obviously the book's <laughs> coming out in March. New skill sets, maybe yeah. pottery. <laughs> <laughs> just forgotten, obviously you the art world and, and, and unplugging. Um, how beneficial it is, do you think, for artists to, to unplug, to have a digital detox, whether um, in kind of an extreme way for three or three days or so, or just to limit their use? Like, how useful do you think that is? How much do you think that promotes creativity to just to consciously detach yourself from it from a period of time and then come back to it? I think there's actually, that would lead me to someone that I think you should have on this podcast called Albert Reed, who published The Imagination as a Muscle. Because he speaks about how do you make space for imagination and creativity. And we had a long conversation at dinner about six months ago um, 
on the, the biggest, biggest challenge is distraction. We get distracted non British stop. And I think without trying to bring back my body again, but focus is going to be the big battle. Um, how do you ultimately get focus for a very long time? And that's how great ideas come, great reflection comes. And it's hard, right? Even when you lead a team, there's someone interrupting you every five minutes, right? So it's just how do you coolly focus artists are the same before they used to be in a studio for days now you know they all have their social media their emails their calls their whatsapp right so the battle is carving time for like you were saying about that guy looking at the window for eight hours which probably was me partially too but it's how do you retain that core focus and that 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 way of being you know wandering in your own thinking that you can come up with the right ideas all of this is going to be key your entire world is a system driven to get your attention so everyone's trying to get your attention how do you make sure that you don't give it and you you focus and that's a battle for any creative not just the artist any creative is being targeted with this that's reading uh, that's doing like exercise where you cannot look at your phone or anything. And the thing with ballet is like, if you partially think about something else, you miss the rhythm. So you just miss the full movement and thing. You have to start again. So it's teaching you nonstop that you have to be fully present. And I think that helps with kids too. That helps with managing teams. That helps with all things. But artists have the same challenges. So it's blocking time away from the phone, all the things that you're praising in, uh, with Unplugged, like, you know, just making sure that you have focus and focus will be the battle of that next generation. Just, um, I was going to ask both of you actually as, as founders and people that manage other people, how much responsibility do you think there is on you guys to ensure that your team aren't too stimulated by, by visual stuff and have the, the time and space in their professional and social calendar to, to detachment? Or is that something you, you look at the people that work for you and think, oh, that, that's actually really my responsibility? Or is it, is it more that, that, that's, that's on them to deal with it? I help them where I can. Uh, so I think, <clears throat> well, I think everyone is their own person. I think the, the culture generally, there is a lot on you as the founder because fundamentally people will reciprocate. So if you're sending emails all weekend, and people feel like they have to be online, then I think that is that is something that's, it's your responsibility to set that. And you know, for some people that works, like Elon Musk famously runs all his companies like that and they're very successful. Um, so I think it's about deciding what kind of company you want to run and fundamentally let people choose if they want to be there or not. Uh, but I think a company is just a group of people. So I do think there is, it, it, you know, you have a big impact on how those people are feeling. Like if you are a boss who promotes toxic culture, you know, that is going to show up um, in, in how those people behave. And fundamentally, I think it's going to limit their ability to, to contribute, etc. Uh, and also you just end up with a, a less happy workforce. So I think a lot does come from the boss. But then likewise, I think everyone's different. Like we have some people in our team who work best, you know, completely unplugged at the weekend, myself included sometimes. Uh, and we have other people who just are always on and, and they just kind of work better like that and, you know, have to literally force them to go to a cabin. And Do you rein them in? Like if you see someone sending emails at 11 at night or Sunday morning, do you, no, do you I don't, kind of I mean, step in or you just let, let people do what they... I don't bring them in. I, I don't reply. I mean, I don't see it. But, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I'll, I'll kind of nudge. I'll, you know, suggest, why don't you go for a holiday? Like if, if I feel like someone needs it, but, you know, um, all adults here, like, I kind of see my role as just like supporting. I'm just there to support everyone in the team who's doing the real work. And fundamentally, it's like tuning into each person. Like how, how are they going to work best? You know? And so I, I don't think there's a right answer, um, but I think yeah, you, you know, you, you've got to you've got to kind of take some responsibility. Also, sure. if someone's sending an email 
on a Sunday morning, you don't respond. Like people will, will connect the dots pretty quickly. Yeah, people get the people get the message right. Like, and I think you know, if they see that I have periods of just going dark on all communications for a while, then it normalizes that and it, it makes people much more comfortable to do it. Whereas if you feel like your boss is on every single day all the time, then you feel bad about taking holidays. So yeah, I, I think uh, it does matter. Um, what, what do you think, Marie? Yeah, it's. I think I'm going away from the perfectionism of millennials onto, again, the vulnerability of Gen Z here, where I think as a first-time boss, initially, I was very, like, I just wanted to excel, and I just wanted to be the good student that excel in all all matters and be irreproachable and, you know, show that everything was possible. I think now I'm much more a team player and much more collaborative with my teams. I'm also looking forward to learn. I just feel I learn tons from them. Um... So I'm much more on the seat back than I was on the front seat. I think, of course, with every with every stage of a company, also you just behave quite differently. But I just I'm, I had a lot of fun this year in being told what to do and and ultimately learning plenty, um, and just retaining the core vision and the core values. And but actually, the rest constantly learning and having fun with it. Um, so I think that changes. I think I did understand over the years that you you do work for the people that you hire not the other way around um but with no any resentment i think that's the thing is i think it just takes time because it's um management like this management initially feels like something so heavy to bear like you're trying to make sure financially you can pay for people you're stressed financially you already stretch time-wise and stress-wise and pressure-wise and on the top of this you have to listen to every story from the washing machine to the stepdad to things like this right you just don't have space um it's it's too much and then you just get older and it's true it's quite fascinating it's the same with kids for some reason you end up able to you can fit more as you get older because i think you understand first better how people work you understand how to allocate time for them and making the best out of that so you might realize that actually quick texting is completely useless which obviously we don't like and we've moved everything to google space and definitely don't encourage this firing of texts non-stop you understand how to encourage a better communication between your teams, or how to reduce things that will be stressful. But you also understand yourself better. You understand what you, what you find stressful and what you don't like as a mode of communication. So I think be kind to yourself on founders because I feel, you know, you just bear all those responsibilities at the start. I have been a single founder. It feels so much, too much. Um, and then time comes in. You've got the right people you can trust. Um you start delegating properly and then you also know yourself better so you can instill better practices but it comes with time and I think it's okay at the beginning that it's not perfect it can't be anyway you're not you're barely lasting you barely have a runway for the next few months so of course like it's gonna be stressful and it won't be perfect as a company culture but I think by the second you can and you have more visibility on your company I think investing in a notion handbook good processes um, would help you growing as a boss. I think being a B Corp first really helped because they give you processes. Uh, they give you uh, how to follow all the systems of values, which is really helpful when you've never done it. Um, and then seeking advice. There's so many books that talks about it. Um, there's And I think, again, like um, there's so many books that talks about how do you talk about that vulnerability, those emotions, mental well-being into your company culture, which is feels so counter... Uh, intuitive when you start because I was mentored by 50 years old men who were the total opposite and then you're having to reshift right um, but it takes time 
you have to but that's why I will always be kind to founders because I think initially it's too much um, and that's normal that is messy at the beginning I think what one of the most important things if not the is like looking after yourself because the best thing you can do for the people in the company is like turn up well yourself you know turn up being like you know you spoke about post ballet turning up you know kind of confident and j just giving off that kind of energy like if you as the boss turn up and you're stressed and you know you're grouchy like that that's just going to ruin everyone else's day yeah and you said the energy of the room i think they really do look they really i think that's can you call that responsibility and i think that's what can be daunting at the start but then it gets easier as you go on is that you realize that you do impact people drastically and i think it's but you're carrying all loads of other stress on the side right so i think but i think you carry it better with time is the answer but i think that's what can feel daunting but gets easier over time and have you stayed in one of the unplugged cabins <laughs> i haven't yet but i can't <laughs> wait i actually generally can't wait um i'm a big fan of what you guys are doing so you're gonna stay in one of the cabins or we'll see what happens <laughs> <laughs> I, I would absolutely love get your to commission, mate. <laughs> but did you see the latest trend in um in california of this 24 hours of of dopamine no. you should look at this because i think that's i'm going to try and do that well for 24 hours you have no dopamine whatsoever um, but I think that will suit you. So that will, that will be how I can try my, the unplug too. How extreme is that? Like, what do you need to cut out? So you have to cut processed food. You have to cut anything that releases form of dopamine. Um, controversial, you may have to cut sex, but that's for the extreme types. Um, I'm not sure you have to cut sex if you're not extreme. But anything that releases a quick endorsement, because the dopamine is we know that with the apps and everything, we're filled with dopamines. And that's also what creates lots of anxiety. So it's the latest trend. But therefore, I was thinking on my many attempts of trying new stuff that this will be one thing I should try just to give it a go for 24 hours and, and see how my brain thinks. So I just like to see how the brain responds to things. But the way the world's set up now, I suppose you'd have to take yourself away from it, right? To not have any exactly. dopamine for 24 hours, like sit in a room. That's why you guys are perfect for it. 24 hours of dopamine, a new trend. Exactly. All right, nice. Well, um, yeah, that's, I think we rattled through a lot there in nearly nearly an hour. So, yeah, anything we missed off, Hector? No, I mean, just thank you so much for coming on, first of all. And uh, where can people hear about you? When's the book coming out? Like, what, Where can next? they find you? So um, you can find me in many places. We have a website, mtr.agency. We are by Bond Street Station. We do loads of events. So there's loads of cool stuff to attend. You will hopefully see us through loads of the public art that we do. So you should see our little logo in all of those. And then we are on Instagram, we are on TikTok, we are on LinkedIn, all the stuff that you guys are on too. Um, book is coming out on the 7th of March. There'll be plenty. Um, there'll be a launch in many bookstores um, and loads of events and loads of conversation around it. So again, basically tech part, ask questions. I'm very responsive as a person. So um, feel free to reach out. Love it. Awesome. Great stuff. Thank you very much for coming in. Massively Thank appreciate you. it, especially after all the flying and two kids and our busiest guest <laughs> yet, maybe. So, like, yeah, appreciate it. Thank Pleasure. you. Pleasure. Does your brain ever feel like this? <laughs>